Good morning, everyone. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. I want to thank the worship team for a great service so far, and uh, thank you, Matt, for the word that you shared as well. We are, uh, this morning, is, uh, I'm really glad you're here because we are kicking off a brand new series that's going to take us through a lot of the summer called Endless Summer. And uh, Pastor Scott has created a, uh, a booklet here that you can pick up, you can pick these up at the information table. And you can use these to track with the sermon. You can, uh, the small groups that are meeting over the summer will be going through these together as well. And Pastor Scott wrote a pretty great introduction, I thought, to the series. And this is what he said. We're going to be in the book of Psalms, if you haven't figured that out by now. And he said that the, the Psalms are our greatest hits, our summer playlist, our foretaste of the very words we will sing aloud in heaven with the Lord. And I love that description of the Psalms, and it gives us, I'm just so excited to go through this series this summer. And one of the reasons that we chose the Psalms is because they are unique. The, the book of Psalms is, is, is utterly unique. I mean, there's other places in the Bible where we have bits and pieces of poetry, but the Psalms are sort of God's songs to us. And the, the Psalms were written for us to memorize and meditate on. And that's kind of what songs and music help us do. I can remember back when I was 12 or 13 years old. This was probably 1986 or 1987. And I was starting to grow up a little bit. You know, I was in, in middle school. I thought I was pretty cool at the time. I was a total dork, was the truth. But I remember my parents... Um, as I was growing up, I grew up in a pretty conservative Christian home, and my parents um, would not let me listen to secular, like rock music, I guess it's called, whatever you want to call it. And so I didn't really listen to the radio much and stuff. I listened to, to Christian music. Like, I'm not even going to get into it, okay? It's just I listened to Christian music. And um, I remember, though, when I was like 12 or 13, I got my first Walkman. I, don't, I, I, wish, I, I was going to put a picture of a Walkman on here because I know there's a bunch of you younger people who don't even know what that is. A Walkman is like an MP3 player, but you have to put a physical cassette tape in there, and then there's this, mach- this mechanism that like turns the, the tape, and then there's music on it. I, don't, I obviously don't know the technology, but it, you can listen to it with headphones and everything, and I had this Walkman that was about this big, and it went on the side of my belt. And I remember late at night, one, one night, I just felt, I just felt reckless. So I decided to turn the radio on and listen to secular music, like rock music. So I turned the t- station to like WKTI or some station like that that I had heard of that was playing pop music at the time. And I remember the song, the first song that I ever heard was Richard Marks' Endless Summer Nights. I'm not proud of that. I, listen, Richard Marks' Endless Summer Nights is such a cheesy song about this, you know, fleeting summer romance or whatever. And, uh, and I, I can, I, I'm ashamed to say I can remember every single word to that song today because I thought it was such a cool song and I, that's, I started listening to, to more music like that and then I started listening to, you know, Aerosmith and Def Leppard and all the bands that were big at the, in that time in the mid-80s and Richard Marks became a thing of the past. But music just sort of takes words and ingrains them into our minds and our hearts, you know? I mean, I... I don't know how many times I heard the song Endless Summer Nights, but I can, you know, 30, 30 years later, I can remember the words, every single word of that song. And can you imagine 
your life without music? I, I'm not even really a music buff, but I can't imagine my life without music. Music and poetry and song, just, they just go together. And they add so much flavor to life. Music ignites our minds and our memories and our, it stirs our emotions. And songs engage us at a deeper level than, than mere words do. And one of the things I love about the Bible is that God, has, God knows that. God understands that. God created music. He created music for a purpose. And, and, and music is good. It's a gift from God. It's a gift. And we should appreciate it. And, and, and one of the things I love about the Bible is there's so many different types of ways that God communicates with us. There's teaching and there's instruction. There's historical narrative. There's genealogy. There's apocalyptic language and imagery. And there's even poetry and songs. And so over the summer, we're going to listen to God's songs to us. Now, you might not know this, but the book, the Old Testament book of the Bible that is read the most by followers of Jesus is the book of Psalms. Did you know that? Do you, do you know why that is? It's probably because no other book of the Bible gives it such a balanced and full and realistic expression of what life with God is truly like. The Psalms describe every kind of human experience and emotion. They beautifully reflect on the reality that life with God is both incredibly rewarding and incredibly hard. It's both, isn't it? It's both of those things. There are ups and downs. There are victories and failures. There are highs and lows. There are some people who think that if you're following God, you should not struggle with addiction and you should not struggle with depression and you shouldn't struggle with anger or bitterness or fear. But the Psalms teach us more than any other book of the Bible that even the most devout followers of God can struggle with all of those things. We're prone to all of those things, even as followers of God. So today we're going to begin our journey through Psalms and we're going to start with Psalm number one. Psalm number one we don't know who wrote it or when they wrote it. There's, there's no title. There's, the only thing we really know is that this psalm in particular is meant to be the introduction or gateway to the entire book of 150 psalms. So it's really important for us to start with Psalm 1, I think. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to read Psalm chapter 1. It's only six verses. You can follow along with me. Blessed is the man... Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's the word of God. Now, I would like to give you a really simple summary of this song before we do anything else. This song is about two kinds of people or two ways to live. It's, it shows us two kinds of people in the world that are sort of moving in opposite directions. They both want to be happy. They both appear to be happy. But here's the difference. One of them makes happiness their goal in life. 
and the other does not. One of them has happiness, but their happiness has no root. It doesn't last. The other person has true happiness with roots so deep that even the harshest storms of life cannot tear it out of him. That's what the psalm is about. And the reason I'm talking about happiness is because the very first word of the psalm, which is in the, this is the introduction to the entire book of Psalms, remember, is the word blessed. And that word blessed in the Hebrew means happiness. The subject here is the happy person, the truly happy person. And to the writer of this psalm, the truly happy person basically is the person who God accepts. It's someone who knows that they have God's favor. They know that God is on their side. That's what makes someone truly happy. Whoever wrote this psalm is assuming that every single person wants to be happy or blessed. And the kind of happiness they're describing comes from a deep sense of well-being and rightness with God. It means It pictures a person who is happy and fulfilled because of a sense of being intrinsically right. They're right with God. That's what biblical happiness means. It's a quality of happiness that's not dependent on your circumstances. It's not dependent on your relationships. It's not dependent on your success or career or any of that. It's dependent on your relationship with God. Now I think we all would agree that we all want to be happy. We all want to experience that. We all want to be fundamentally and consistently happy people. We, some of us know really people who are happy. They seem happy all the time, and their, their roots of happiness seem to go somewhere deeper than your own. And we want that when we see it. The question is, why aren't we happier? The question is, why aren't, especially people who claim to know God and love God and to have the favor of God, why aren't we fundamentally and consistently happy? Why why does happiness seem to be so elusive to us? The writer says, the writer of this psalm says, the reason so many people in our world are not happy is because they're on the wrong path. They're on the wrong path. They've chosen the wrong way. They've made happiness their goal. And you will never find happiness if happiness is your goal. That sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? But that's the truth. This is what the Bible says over and over and over again. The Bible talks about happiness. I mean, you see the word blessed all over the, New, the Old Testament and even the New Testament, but nowhere does it say, blessed is the person who seeks after blessedness. You just don't see that anywhere. It's not about making happiness your goal. It's not about making, you know, chasing after your dreams or making happiness your ultimate purpose in life. And so the writer assumes that many people are looking for happiness and the counsel of the wicked and the way of sinners and in the path of scoffers. People look for happiness along that path. Well, what does that mean? Well, think back to Genesis with me. I know we just talked about this passage last week in, in the early pa- uh, chapters of Genesis. But how did, the, how did the serpent tempt Adam and Eve? Think about that. The tempter came up to Adam and Eve and he enticed them. And what he did was he offered them something they didn't have. He basically said, you don't need God to be happy. Did God really say not to eat, that you couldn't eat of the fruit of this tree? Did God really say that? You won't die. You won't really die. 
God knows that when you eat this fruit, your eyes will be truly opened. You'll get to be like God. You'll know good and evil. That's the life. That's, that's the life you need. That will make you truly happy. You don't need God to be happy. That was the first lie. And that is essentially every lie that we've ever been told. It boils down to you don't need God to be happy. You can find happiness through some other way, through some other shortcut. And so to us, the counsel of the wicked, it sounds so good at times. The way of sinners seems right to us. The seat of scoffers and mockers feels comfortable to us. And I'm sure we could all think of someone we've known who was wicked and happy. You know? Have you known anyone who was wicked and happy? But things are not always what they seem. In Proverbs chapter 14 and, and chapter 16, the same verse appears two times. He says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Even in laughter the heart may ache, and joy may end in grief. He's talking about people who are looking for happiness in the wrong places. In Psalm 37, 35, and 36, we read, I have seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a green tree in its native soil, but he soon passed away and was no more. Though I looked for him, he could not be found. Why is that? Because he had no root. His happiness was rooted in something or someone other than God. And the writer of this psalm is making a simple yet profound observation about happiness. He's saying that happy people are not happy because they pursued and found happiness. They're not happy because they earned happiness. They're not happy because their lives have worked out. They're not happy because they never gave up on their dreams. They're not happy because their life has been easy. Happy people are happy because they've pursued God and made God their hope. God was their dream. God was their delight. God was their first love. God was their treasure. If you think back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous sermon he gave early on in his ministry, in Matthew chapter 5, he, he gives the Beatitudes. They're called the Beatitudes. That's the basically, here's the people who have a happy attitude, is what that whole sermon is about. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Think about those people. The people Jesus is saying are the happiest people in the universe are people who are poor in spirit and often poor in possessions and finances. Every single type of person Jesus mentions in the Beatitudes, are, they're happy not because of what they have, but because of who they are. It's because of who they are. They didn't pursue happiness. They were not hungry for happiness. They were hungry for God. That's what makes them different than everybody else. In other words, happiness is not something you find because you were looking for it. It is not something you earn. Happiness is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. It's something God has. God is the happiest being in the universe, and he shares his joy with us. When we find our satisfaction in him, that's how it works. The writer of the Psalm, Psalm 1 goes on to describe the happy person to us. He says, His delight 
is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. Here's the first characteristic we're given, a positive characteristic we're given of the happy person. He's saying this is the way of life. The happy person delights in God's word and, and delights in what, the, what God's word reveals to him about God. And that's what the law of God here means. It's a way of talking about God's revelation of himself. So in other words, the happy person believes that God is good, God is trustworthy, God is merciful, and God is gracious, and God rewards those who seek him. The happy person, the, the truly happy person who's on the way of life delights in all of this. They're continually thinking about God. They want to know God. They think about life with God as a cosmic adventure of continual discovery and newness. These are people who don't get easily bored with God. Instead, they revere him and they love him and they want nothing more than to be in God's presence. They just want to be in God's presence. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 27. In verse 4, the writer says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. Is it happiness? No. He doesn't ask for happiness. That's not the one thing he's after. The one thing is this, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple, in his house, to seek his presence. Now this might make some of you uncomfortable. My wife and I have talked about this before. And this is a difficult concept to wrestle with. But when I read verses like the one we just read from Psalm 27, and those kinds of verses are all over the Bible, it makes me think of someone who's in love. You know? Can you be in love with God? It sure sounds like it to me. It sounds like you can be in love with God. This is the language of a man in love with his God. Do you remember what it's like to be in love? I mean, some of you are probably in love right now. And it's an... Why are you laughing? That is it... There's nothing like that feeling. You're probably laughing because you remember what it was like, right? I mean, listen, it might be, some of you might be in love with, the, with a, a boyfriend or girlfriend or fiancé. You might be in love with your spouse, which is awesome. You might be in love with a new baby. One of my friends in this church just, just had a baby, his first son. And I just, I just see him, it's like, that's what I picture. He's in love with his son. He just wants to be with him. You know, at the end of the workday, you just can't wait to get home to your son, right? I mean, that's what it's like. You just, you're at work. You're thinking about, oh, I can't wait to get home to my new, my new child. And children feel that way towards their parents, too. They just want to be with their parents. They just want to be with their parents. The other night, my wife and I, we decided to eat outside. And on our deck, we have like a, a gazebo that's kind of closed off. And so what we like to do I don't recommend this necessarily, but we like to have our kids all sit at the picnic table over here, and then we'll go in the gazebo, which we should probably get a lock on the inside. But they come, they always come in to the gazebo. They all want to sit with us around the table, and, uh, and they just kept coming in and coming in, and the door kept slamming. And Vicky, Vicky looked at me, and she saw me go, like, roll my eyes or something. She's like, Dave, we need to appreciate this time of life, because they're not always going to want to be with us. And then I changed my attitude, because I realized she's right. Our kids, they just want to be with us right now, but the day might come when they don't, and I'll miss them hanging on me all the time, I guess. So I'm told. But this is the idea. 
you're overwhelmed with and preoccupied with this person. Your love and affection for your child or your wife or your spouse. Some people feel this way about their dog. I know, I mean, some people just, they feel this way about their dog or worse, their cat. You know, they just can't wait to get home to be with that thing. You know, that's beauty to them. That, that's, that's beauty to them. And the writer of the psalm is saying, to me, God is the ultimate beauty. God is, I mean, there's nothing better in my life than to be in God's presence. That's what he's saying. And the question we should be asking ourselves is, am I hungry for God? Am I preoccupied with God? Do I have an appetite for God? I want to share with you a quote by C.S. Lewis. In his reflections on the Psalms, he wasn't even talking about this Psalm. He was talking about a praise Psalm. And this is what he said. The worthier the object, the more intense this delight would be. If, I, if it were possible for a created soul fully to appreciate, that is, to love and delight in, the worthiest object of all, and simultaneously at every moment to give this delight perfect expression, then that soul would be in supreme happiness. To see what this doctrine really means, we must suppose ourselves to be in perfect love with God. To be drunk with, drowned in, dissolved by that delight. Have you ever experienced that? Just, just, just kind of drowning in God's presence and being just full of affection and joy. Knowing God. Just meditating on His promises, on His Word, who He is, how He feels about us. You know, when we're singing that song, Oh, How He Loves Us, that's what we're talking about. That's what, that's what, that's what He was thinking of, I'm sure of it, when He wrote that. He's just overwhelmed with it. Overwhelmed with, how could a God like that love a person like me? It's just, it shakes up your whole life. And this is so important and practical. Listen, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty here, honestly. But if you are not, if you are not delighting in God's word, if you are not spending regular time in God's word, thinking about it, reading it, reading it again and again, then how can your delight be in God? I just have to ask. How can your delight really be in God? Because this is, God's word is where we, is where we get God's revelation of himself to us. So we should, we should be spending loads of time in it. If our delight is in God, that's where we're going to be. We're going to be students of his word. It's just how, the way it is, it's the reality. And the reason that we should want to be in God's word more is because of how it changes who we are. Listen to what the psalmist says in verse 3. He describes the person who's on the path towards God, the truly happy person. He says, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And this passage reminded me of another passage 
in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17. This is one of the first passages I ever memorized as a disciple of Jesus, and it stuck with me over the years. This is what it says. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land, a wasteland. Blessed is the man, here's the contrast, blessed is the man, or happy is the man, who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. What an amazing picture of the person who finds their happiness in God. I mean, what he's saying is that the truly, even the truly happy person, even the person on the path that God has laid out, the path towards God, is subject to the seasons. That's the image we get here, is of a, of a tree that is planted by a stream of water, but it's subject to every season. The harshest winters, the driest summers. There are seasons of drought and seasons of fruit, but look at where the roots are. The roots of this person's life are not in their seasons, not in the circumstances around them. Their happiness has nothing to do with what's going on outside of them. Their roots are planted by the streams of water, which means they can produce fruit even in the hard times of life, even in the seasons of loss and sorrow, even in the seasons of suffering and despair, even in seasons of disappointment. The truly happy person is not looking for happiness in their dog or in their spouse or in their children. They're not hungry for happiness. They're hungry for God. God is their rock. Did you know what word is used to describe God more than any other word in the entire book of Psalms? It's the word rock. God is their foundation. They build their whole life around God. He's not some category they just add on to their life. God is everything. They do not set their hopes on a happy marriage. They don't set their hopes on a happy family. They don't find peace by telling themselves, oh, I just know that me and my husband will be together forever. I just know we can get through anything. I, I can't wait to grow old with you. Those are nice sentiments. They are. There's nothing wrong with feeling that way. But if you, if your, if your marriage is your rock, you're in big trouble. If your children are your rock, you're in big trouble. God has to be our rock. Your spouse is going to disappoint you. Your kids are going to disappoint you. Your dog and your cat are going to die. I hate to tell you that. So many people, and my wife and I are tempted to do this, we're tempted to set our hopes on our children turning into wonderful, godly people. We want that. That's a good thing to want. It's a good desire to have. And it might happen and it might not. There's no guarantees. But please do not let your happiness be dependent on the decisions that your children make or the decisions that your spouse makes. It's extremely unhealthy for you and your children and your spouse 
Your children need to see that your happiness is not rooted in their choices. They are not made to carry that burden through life. We have to show our children that our happiness is rooted in God and everything he's freely given us in his son Jesus. That's how to pass on joy to your kids. Jesus himself said in John 7, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Streams of living water. Where do they come from? From within. True happiness comes from the inside, where Christ dwells. So what does this mean for us? Today, it means we're presented with a choice. We have a choice, every one of us. We're offered, there's two ways you can go in life. That's, I mean, all the different paths that people talk about that you can go in life. God pretty much boils it down to two. The way of the righteous or the way of the wicked. The way of life or the way of doom. Right? And whatever path you're on is the path you chose. Jesus, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, presents this choice in his words. He says in Matthew 7, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now what that means is that the way of the wicked is easy and wide. It's not hard to find. It's not hard to stay on. It's not hard to see. But the way of the righteous is different than that. It reminded me actually of this path by my house that my neighbor created recently. And you, you would only see it if you're walking by it. If you're riding on a bike, you'd miss it. That's how narrow it is. He cut this path through a vacant lot and it's overgrown with trees and weeds and shrubs and everything else. And it's about this wide and it's about a half acre long and it's kind of winding and rough. It's like a trail. And you'd only see it if you were walking and looking around. Otherwise, you'll miss it. It's hard to see. It's narrow. And Jesus says, if you find that path, that's the way the path of life is like. And if you find that path, you stay on it. And on the other side is endless freedom, endless joy, total peace with God, true happiness without end. That's the path that he wants us on. And I thought to myself, why is the path, why is that not the path that's wide? (laughs) Why couldn't that be the wide, easy path to find, God? Why did you have to make that the hard path? And it just reminded me of my own life. And it reminded me just my own hard heart and stubbornness and how long it took me to actually find that path. Like I said before, I was raised in, in, a, in a home where my parents modeled godly character. I heard the gospel all the time. I went to church like three times a week when I was a kid. I mean, I was at a Wana youth group. We went on Sunday mornings, sometimes Sunday nights. We did stuff with the church. My parents were involved in the church. We did stuff with the church all the time. I was in Sunday school. I mean, I, heard, I knew the Bible very well. I mean, I memorized hundreds of verses as a kid. But as I grew older, I kept feeling this sense of emptiness. It was just this emptiness. Not happiness, emptiness. I couldn't seem to live right. I couldn't seem to get it right. 
I couldn't seem to stop sinning. I couldn't seem to break these bad habits. And I just kept failing. I just could never seem to please God. I couldn't seem to to live the right way. And I just kept feeling guilty all the time. There was no sense of delight in God. There was only this sense of duty. Like if I don't live this way, and if I don't stay away from these bad things, God is just going to be disappointed with me all the time. And so I constantly felt guilty. And I thought that was the path of righteousness. I thought that was the right way to live, just feeling guilty and falling short all the time. And so I thought, you know, eventually I decided, you know what, this is not what I want. I want to be happy. And I'm not happy trying to please God because I can't seem to do it. And so I got off of that path. And I chose the other path. I started, I I literally started walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers. And I ran the other direction, looking for happiness in everything but God. And that's how I lived for five or six years. And guess where I ended up? Empty, again. (laughs) That led to emptiness too. And I was so frustrated. I was like, God, I know there's at least two paths. I I think I tried both of them. What now? And then I realized that I was never, I was never on the path to righteousness. I was just using God as a young man. I came to God to get happiness, and it didn't work. I negotiated with God. I basically said, God, I'll obey you. I'll stay away from all the bad stuff as long as you make me happy and protect me and bless me and blah, blah, blah. And that never works. There's no negotiating with God. There is no coming to the Lord of the universe with conditions. All you can do is throw yourself on his mercies and ask for forgiveness. All you can do really is simply come to God to get God. And that's what the gospel is all about. See, because the gospel tells us that I have failed on the way to righteousness. There's no way I can please God. I fall short every single time. I've chosen the way of sinners. Maybe some of you are listening to this, to this message this morning and you're thinking, what hope is there for me? I've been stuck on the way of the wicked my whole life. What can I possibly do to change that? And that's why we need the gospel so much. The gospel is good news. This psalm, what we're going to see this summer is that this psalm, the psalms are about Jesus. They point us to Jesus. Jesus delighted in God's law. Jesus is the living water. He feeds the tree. But listen to this. Jesus also stood, he walked in the counsel of the wicked, he stood in the way of sinners, Jesus sat in the seat of scoffers. When did he do that? On the cross. On the cross, we're told, Jesus Christ became sin. He became sin for us. He was punished by God for our sin. And Jesus took our place. He's the righteous one who was judged on the cross for our sin so that when the judgment happens, the wicked will not stand and God will look at us and he will say, you've already been judged in the body of my son. And with you I'm well pleased. Why would God be well pleased with us? 
Because of Jesus. Not because of us, because we get Jesus' righteousness. That's what happens when we put our faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus did everything that we couldn't do. He is our righteousness, and we don't have to feel guilty anymore because he took our guilt and our shame. And he w- it was all nailed to the cross. And you know what? When I meditate on that, it just makes me want to be in God's presence more than ever. Because it makes me think, how a God like this, what could be better than being in his presence? As we close today, I want you to think of the, the parable of the prodigal son. It's one of my favorite parables in the New Testament. And if you remember, there were two sons, and they went two different ways. One of the sons chose the way of the righteous, right? And he obeyed his father, and he stayed home, and he did everything his father wanted, to, wanted him to. The other son went what we would call the way of the wicked. He took his father's inheritance early. He wasted it on prostitutes and reckless living. He ended up with nothing, and he came basically groveling back to his father. And he made one request to his father. He said, Father, I don't want to be called your son. He didn't ask his father to make him happy, to give him anything, or to take him back as his son. All he said was, Will you have mercy on me and take me back as your servant? Father, I owe you. You owe me nothing. I owe you. This is the son who went the wicked way. (laughs) And what did the father do? The father was thrilled. He he didn't even let his son finish his proposition. He grabbed him. He embraced him. He called to his servants. He said, get my best robe. Get my best stuff. Give it all to my son. I thought he was lost and he's found. I thought he was dead and he's alive. Let's have a party. And there was rejoicing. Because this son, the wicked son, just came to God and he he said, God have mercy on me. That's all he said. And he realized my father delights him. He never realized his father delighted in him so much. That's why he left in the first place. He never delighted in his father the way his father delighted in him. And I want to just leave you with that picture of God your father this morning. Because that's the God we worship. He's a God worth worshiping. He's a God who, I mean, being in his presence is the best thing you could possibly experience in this life. Which is why I think the Psalms start out this way. By saying there's two ways to go. You can go your own way. You can trust in your own strength or you can delight in God. And only one of those ways is ever going to make you truly happy. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning in the name of your Son, Jesus. We thank you for your word which gives us light and wisdom and encouragement and which reveals your character to us. And I'm so thankful, God, that you gave us psalms that we can reflect on your beauty and reflect on your your goodness and your mercy every single week as we go through this, our summer playlist together. And we're so thankful for who you are, God. And I pray this morning that those who who are hurting or broken or feel lost or alone or empty, those who feel hurt, those who feel distant from you, Lord, that you would give them a fresh sense of your grace this morning, that you would break through our hard hearts in the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would pierce us with the light of Jesus and that you would remind us of your goodness and your gospel. And that we would be awakened to new life this morning. And that we would meditate 
on you the rest of this summer together. In Christ's name we pray, amen.